Welcome to today's uh, RAIN podcast on the implications of Venezuelan sanctions. In August of 2017, the Trump administration issued complex new sanctions against Venezuela, prohibiting the purchase of bonds issued by the government of Venezuela or any of its entities, including new bond issuances of the state-owned energy company. On November 2nd, Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro announced that the country will attempt to restructure its debt. Its debt. Difficult due to new sanctions. Last week's arrest of six CITCO executives could further complicate the legal battles over PDVSA assets and may signal renewed infighting within the Venezuelan government. In this podcast, RAIN founder David Lawrence sits down with James Bondsworth, founder of the consulting and technology firm Hexagon, which provides risk assessments and predictive analysis in emerging markets to discuss the issues facing the Venezuelan bond restructuring. Bosworth writes and consults on politics, security, economics, and technology issues in emerging markets, particularly Latin America and the Caribbean. He is the author of Bloggings by Boz, where he provides daily analysis and commentary on Latin American politics and U.S. foreign policy. I'll now turn it over to Rain's founder, David Lawrence. David? Great. Thanks, and James, uh, thanks for making time for us today. Obviously, very timely. Uh, with a lot of interest around Venezuela, uh, its bonds, default scenarios, and obviously, uh, as Greg was referencing, the recent arrests. Why don't we start um, by your giving us an overview of what's happening and uh, explaining the default scenario that we're currently in. Sure, and thanks for having me here, David. Uh, the Venezuela is in a Schrodinger's default scenario at the moment. Uh, they uh, announced the restructuring in early November, and yet people are still uncertain as to whether Venezuela is attempting to refinance and restructure if they're entering default. Um, so far, Venezuela has continued to make payments on all of its debt. Some of that, some of those payments have come in delayed, uh, which has placed it in technical default. And so the, the, many of the bonds can no longer be traded internationally. And the ISDA has ruled uh, that Venezuela has entered default, which allows the, the payment out of credit default swaps on both Venezuelan sovereign bond debt and PDVSA debt. Uh, at the same time, Venezuela has insisted they will continue to pay all of the debt that they hold. And those payments have come in, sometimes days or even weeks late. This has given bondholders a, a difficult situation to deal with because as anyone in business will tell you, they'd rather take 100% of payments three weeks late than, than take the haircut and take 30% of those payments three years later. Uh, there's, it, it is in the bondholders' interest to avoid declaring Venezuela in default at the moment and accelerating payments and forcing Venezuela to make difficult decisions, which will probably end up in a restructuring and a haircut. They'd rather just continue receiving the payments as they come in. Uh, and yet, everybody knows that at some point, probably next year, Venezuela will simply run out of money. Uh, they, they cannot possibly make all of the payments that they have due in the coming year. So they are eventually going to default and fail to pay on something. Uh, it won't just come in late, it just never will come in. And the question is when that happens and whether Venezuela will even announce if it happens. And so with that in mind, bondholders are, are, are meeting uh, and holding informal meetings, trying to decide when exactly they declare Venezuela in default, or, or if they declare Venezuela in default, and how to deal with this restructuring process. Uh, making this more complicated, uh, Venezuela cannot restructure easily with the U.S. sanctions that are on it. Uh, Venezuela is not allowed to issue new debt. 
uh, under the U.S. sanctions. Now, the U.S. government has made some has hinted that maybe they might allow some restructuring of debt uh, if the Venezuelan National Assembly were to approve that debt. And the Venezuelan government and the opposition are actually meeting today in the Dominican Republic to discuss whether or not, and I'm sure default and, and debt issues will be on the agenda there. Uh, so so there's, there's a lot of complications, both domestic politics and international politics. Uh, there's complications in terms of whether they've paid or when they're going to pay, when they're going to stop paying. And all of that has made it uh, unclear to bondholders as to whether the bonds that they are holding are actually what they may be worth, uh, both short term and long term. That's a great overview, and uh, among the themes you're highlighting, James, is that while there, this is obviously the issue of uh, for investors is uh, the bonds that they're holding, the bonds they may want to acquire, the bonds they may want to sell. In reality, this is a very complex geopolitical matter, and maybe you can unwrap that a little bit for us uh, in terms of what's going on not only in Venezuela but broadly. Um, there are a number of significant players, obviously the U.S. government, but Russia and China are certainly significant here. Sure. So, so Venezuela owes internationally probably about $160 billion worth of debt. And I say probably, uh, you know, it's a billion here and a billion there. It, 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 sometimes sometimes the, the exact number of debt is not clear. There's also a lot of debt that isn't related to bonds. And so oil service providers such as Halliburton, uh, are owed money from the Venezuelan government. There are numerous companies in Colombia and Brazil and Uruguay and Argentina that are owed money by the Venezuelan government. That's not included in that $160 billion. That $160 billion really goes to uh, three locations. Uh, it's bondholders who hold bonds that are governed by the state laws of New York. It is Russia, the government of Russia and the government of China. And uh, to that end, uh, all of the different players have different incentives for how they want to act. China, in many ways, has, has started to cut its losses and started to cut its losses actually a year or two ago. And, and they just want to get paid and they want to diversify away from Venezuela. There's actually a, a very large China Latin America conference going on this week in Uruguay uh, in which they are extending their one path, one road uh, program into Latin America. And China's trying to get away from being over, overexposed in Venezuela to, to being exposed across South America and, have, and having greater investments everywhere. Uh, and they understand that Venezuela is a liability to them. Russia, on the other hand, uh, views Venezuela as a critical part of its foothold into the Americas. And they have some political incentives for backing the Venezuelan government and making sure that the Venezuelan government remains a thorn in the side of the United States and the OAS. And so Russia has increased its exposure to Venezuela while China has moved back. Uh, to that end, Russia seems to be a major player in what is going on right now in Venezuela in terms of the, the investigations into corruption, in terms of the internal power dynamics. And uh, their voice in this is, is important for understanding how Venezuela will restructure its debt. In the end, Russia and China, like the bondholders uh, in the U.S. and Europe, uh, want to make sure that they get paid back. They don't want to be the ones to get burned in all this. And so everyone's sort of juggling up in the air. But this is different than Argentina, where most of the bonds were, all, were, were owned by Western bondholders. In this case, there's significant amounts of debt owed to, to bondholders who are outside of that. And, and so you're in a multi-way, in a multi-directional negotiation among all these different players trying to make sure that they all get paid back. You mentioned some of the geopolitical motivations that uh, Russia may have and uh, China may have, and obviously uh, some of these things may go with cross-purposes to U.S. interests. Um, 
share with us some of the perspectives you have around the U.S. sanctions and uh, how the U.S. government may be considering the, we'll call it the macro object, objectives of Russia and China. Oh, sure. Uh, so the U.S. government, has, under originally under President Obama, uh, and they've expanded under under the current administration, they, uh, they've issued sanctions on a number of Venezuelan actors uh, in order to punish those actors for violations of human rights, violations of democracy. Uh, and the goal of the goal of these sanctions uh, is to uh, push Venezuela back into uh, becoming a country that respects human rights and and implements de uh, democratic reforms and allows democracy to reflourish. Uh, at this point, Venezuela really is no longer a, a democracy, even though they will be holding presidential elections at some point next year. Uh, most of the international community no longer considers Venezuela a democracy. And, and the U.S. government, uh, rightly or wrongly, has decided that sanctions are, are the correct path in order to push Venezuela into a more democratic path. Now, obviously, uh, Russia really doesn't care if Venezuela is a democracy. Uh, Russia has a motivation to uh, maintain the current government in power because the current government is an ally. China doesn't care necessarily whether Venezuela is a democracy or not, but China is much more flexible and China is very willing to work with a government that comes post Maduro. And so, and so there's, China is not necessarily invested in keeping the current government of Venezuela in power the way Russia is. And the U.S. government clearly does not want Maduro in power and wants to see, and wants to see a, an eventual democratic transition away from the, the current government of Venezuela. And so that puts the three sides at, at different points in terms of what they're promoting in, ter in terms of Venezuela's political future. Yeah. Now, there's a lot going on inside Venezuela uh, with uh, a number of uh, new appointments, removals. Maybe you can uh, give us some context behind those moves. Sure. So uh, last week, the Venezuelan government arrested six executives of Sitco. Uh, Sitco is a U.S. company uh, owned by PDVSA, the, the, the Venezuelan national oil firm. And these executives were arrested uh, on charges of corruption. Uh, the claim is that they negotiated a refinancing agreement for Sitco's debt, Sitco's debt being different than PDVSA's debt. Uh, they negotiated a, a, a refinancing of Sitco's debt without the approval of the Venezuelan presidency. And, and there may have been other backroom deals that occurred is, is what the claim is. Uh, also last week, going into this week, the Venezuelan government removed Nelson Martinez and Del Pino from their posts. That, that was the minister of oil and the head of PDVSA. And removed them from their posts and, and installed a military general with zero experience in the oil industry uh, to, be, to run both the, the Ministry of Oil and, and, the, and PDVSA. Uh, just yesterday, then, both Del Pino and Martinez were arrested, and the Venezuelan attorney general uh, gave a press conference in which he accused Martinez and Del Pino of being part of, a, of several corruption schemes. One of the corruption schemes was the same corruption scheme that the Sitco executives were arrested with. Another one involved a joint Venezuela-Russia venture into the oil industry. Uh, and and the, the, the Venezuelan Attorney General Saab indicated that there would be other big fish, whales, sharks, used all three terms, um, that would be arrested in the near future. Uh, most people believe he was referring to Rafael Ramirez, who is Venezuela's ambassador to the UN, uh, used to be in charge of numerous oil posts in Venezuela. And Ramirez appears to be on his way out and likely to be indicted in Venezuela as well. 
So the big question for analysts is why is Maduro doing this? Uh, what makes uh, it, the fact that there's corruption in Venezuela is not a surprise to anyone. Everybody knows that there's uh, multiple hundreds of millions of dollars of corruption that have happened over the last decade. The question is why, why now and why these people? Uh, part of the answer appears to be related to the fact that Maduro wants to make sure Maduro's biggest threat comes from inside the PSUV, uh, inside his own political party. The, the mood, the, the Venezuelan opposition, really is not much of a political threat to him this, these days. It's, it is the PSUV and the military that, that are the biggest threat to Maduro power, both right this moment as well as in next year's presidential election. And so Maduro appears to be clearing house of anybody who could threaten his, his ability to run for re-election next year, as well as remove people who could be in key posts should someone within the PSUV try to remove Maduro. And so by removing these, these people, he does seem to uh, be thinking through a power, rethinking through the power balancing strategy of the PSUV. Uh, I would add to that, that that corruption is real in Venezuela. I mean, the, the fact that, that these men may have engaged in some level of corruption uh, should not be surprising. And corruption has impacted the oil industry. Uh, under President Maduro, the amount of oil being produced by Venezuela has gone down from 3 million barrels per day to 2 million barrels per day. And so with that decline in oil production, a lot of that goes to just mismanagement as well as corruption. And so having, you know, looking to clean house and fix that problem uh, is actually a real issue for the Venezuelan government. And there may be some, some real legitimate issues for corruption going on here, as well as the political power play within the PSUV. So with all this uh, going on, how should U.S. and international bondholders be thinking about their positions and their, the optionality and what's likely to come? Well, I, I mean, first, people need to, to do their due diligence and, and be very aware of potential FCPA violations or sanctions violations. Uh, this is a, an issue where the U.S. government is uh, willing and I would say even eager to prosecute uh, people who violate the sanctions or who engage with Venezuelans who are corrupt. And so, and so it, it's critical that, that people are uh, aware of those threats. Additionally, there's a public relations threat. Uh, I, I mean, we have, haven't talked about it yet, but Venezuela's situation for the 25 million or so Venezuelans who remain in the country uh, is dire. It is one of the most violent countries in the world, uh, one of the top five homicide rates per capita in the world. Uh, it has massive food and medicine shortages. Over 20% of children are experiencing malnutrition uh, due to food shortages, uh, many of whom are going to have growth, uh, their growth stunted for their lifetime based on the, the malnutrition. And so uh, Venezuela's internal situation is dire, and bondholders take a risk in engaging with the Venezuelan government any way that makes it seem like they're looking to get paid before the Venezuelan people get fed. Um, and, so, and so there's both a legal risk and a public relations risk here that, that need to be considered um, it, when considering whether, whether or not that, to deal with this. The, the restructuring is also going to be complicated because it, there's, there's very little reason to believe what the Venezuelan government says. Uh, the idea that they may be lying uh, certainly exists. They, they may be trying to play their cards in certain ways to, to gain money. Uh, there's also the possibility they simply don't know what they're doing. Uh, there was a point last year in which the Maduro government tried to ban 
hundred Bolivar notes just for a few days and it caused rioting and people died. And then they went back on their promise. I mean, they, they, they don't always know what they're doing economically. So, so it's, it's sort of, you know, are they, it's the evil to incompetent spectrum. Are they, are they, are they doing something wrong because they're, because they're evil and they're corrupt and they're trying to steal money or are they doing something wrong simply because they don't know what they're doing and where they fall on that spectrum sometimes isn't very clear, but, but both of those, both, both ends of that spectrum are a threat to anyone who's trying to negotiate with them. As you think about the U.S. sanctions in particular, James, um, what should bondholders expect? And, you know, there are many sort of good faith investors coming from institutions, pension funds, endowments, et cetera, who have found themselves sort of in the crosshairs of this uh, geopolitical conflict. And obviously, uh, with some very, very significant sanctions that impact uh, their ability to uh, buy, sell, and otherwise uh, protect their investments. So uh, the, uh, at the moment, the U.S. government is very unlikely to let up on the sanctions. It is much more likely that the U.S. government strengthens sanctions than weakens them in the coming six months. And it's likely that other sanctions will be coming down the pipeline uh, either from the U.S. government or potentially from other governments around the world uh, or in the hemisphere that uh, go after uh, key personnel within Venezuela, as well as attempt to, to block certain financial transactions. Uh, the president of Argentina, Mauricio uh, Macri, uh, to asked the U.S. government in an interview at one point to potentially sanction Venezuelan oil. Uh, which has been sort of the one step the U.S. government has not yet taken. And that would impact Venezuela's ability to pay uh, any sort of bonds in, moving into the next year. Uh, so institutional investors need to sort of expect that uh, the, that the US, United States government, as long as Nicolas Maduro is president, is, is going to keep up its sanctions and likely strengthen those sanctions. And that's going to make it very difficult for the Maduro government to negotiate. Ultimately, the U.S. government's objective is, is some sort of uh, transition back to democracy in Venezuela until that happens the U.S. government's not going to be very lenient for negotiations. The one exception to that may be if the Maduro government be begins to work with the Venezuelan National Assembly, which was democratically elected in late 2015 and really has been barred from exercising any of its powers. Uh, the U.S. government seems to have, in recent weeks, made that a point of leverage where they've said the sanctions may not apply if the National Assembly uh, approves any sort of any sort of deal. They're trying to give the National Assembly power back that's been stripped from it Ill Ill illegally and unconstitutionally by the Venezuelan government. And that leverage, if it works out, could lead to some openings for bondholders to restructure, renegotiate, and get their get their bonds get get the money flowing again. Um, but I would say, uh, you know. Less likely, uh, less likely than 50 percent that that's going to occur. In, in, in the past, it's been very unlikely that the Venezuelan government and the opposition have been able to reach any sort of agreement that lasts for a significant length of time. Uh, so there, there may be some good faith steps. We may see some positive movement, but long term, you know, over the course of several months, it's unlikely to move. So um, if I'm understanding you correctly, um, sanctions stay in place get even more arduous until there's regime change or some significant pivot by the Maduro government. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm avoiding the words regi regime change. Uh, you know, that, 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 that brings back bad memories. I, I, know, and I, noticed I, you did. I noticed you did, but still, that's the... It, uh, it, it, I would say read about it. really is the conclusion here. 
I would say redemocratization because because the the real hope I I think by most people is that this isn't a regime change scenario in which in which this all ends in in something terrible. I I think that the hope is that there's a free and fair presidential election at some point next year that leads to a more democratic government in Venezuela. And so, you know, the hope is that the, the exit to this undemocratic government is some sort of vote. And that is the that that would be very preferable to to any other scenario. And so I think that, that, that myself and others are avoiding regime changes as, as the wording because redemocratization you know, can happen peacefully. Uh, that, that option still exists for Venezuela and it would be much better for the Venezuelan people if that was the way it went. All right, so no, no disagreement, but elections have been held before in Venezuela um, and um, questions have been raised about the openness, fairness of the elections and the uh, and the count. And uh, as you've rightly noted, Maduro is uh, making some changes in the government in order to sort of reestablish and, and re-strengthen his, his hold on power. So the likelihood of any kind of shift, the likelihood of sanctions taking effect, how would you, how would you rate that, that possibility? I think that 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 you're you know what you said is correct, right? The, the Venezuelan government is not currently holding free and fair elections, and, and the negotiations uh, currently in the Dominican Republic, point one for the opposition is free and fair elections with international observers and a new electoral council uh, holding those elections that that is considered neutral by both sides. And and obviously the Maduro government wants to avoid that at all costs. They want a rigged election. They want a rigged election where the opposition participates and they win. And so, and so the two sides have to have to negotiate out how exactly. They, they, they meet the middle on that. Um, that's a, there, there have been a number of cases in which undemocratic governments, uh, particularly in Latin America, have, have come to their end via election. Uh, it happened in Chile. Uh, it happened in Peru. And, and certainly uh, it, it could happen in Venezuela. Uh, in, general, it, you know, in general, I think that the, the possibility for some sort of redemocratization or regime change, you know, I, I it, it's hard to say at the moment. That's, that's, I, I hate to say that as somebody who does a lot of predictions. Um, but the, the fact is, it, there's not a clear path to redemocratization happening in the next year. And so it's quite possible that the PSUV, uh, maybe not Nicolas Maduro, but the PSUV uh, remains in power for several more years to come. Uh, that's, I think, uh, you know, the lesson from Zimbabwe uh, that we saw in this past month, uh, you know, everyone predicted Mugabe's downfall for years on end, but nobody actually had November 2017 as the month that it was going to occur. Uh, you know, you can predict all of the dire scenarios for Venezuela. It, when it happens, it's going to happen very quickly. Uh, it's, it's not going to be it's not going to be some sort of slow term move. It's, it's going to it's going to domino effect and just kind of come crashing down. And so and so I'm, I, I'm doubt, I don't want to put my cards on any single month in the next two or three years in which this is going to occur. At the same time, the, the, the government faces significant pressure. They face political pressure, diplomatic pressure, financial pressure uh, that are all going to be closing in on them and their ability to feed the population, keep the military happy is going to become increasingly more difficult over the coming year. Okay, so without uh, putting you into a corner, uh, while you express optimism about a democratic change, you cite to Zimbabwe, where the change came about, you know, because of the military. And uh, there have been rumors about the potential for a coup. And as you noted, the change in Venezuela will come, uh, is likely to come very swiftly and and maybe unpredictably. Uh, Is that what you think 
could occur here. Um, basically, a shift in power and, and the military seizing control, and, and then possibly leading to something that's more democratic. Uh, ultimately, I, I think every analyst agrees that, that the military is the is the ultimate arbiter of the, of the solution uh, in Venezuela, uh, for good or for ill. And so, and so, Maduro's moves uh, in the past month appear it, really in the past three years uh, has largely been to keep the military happy because keeping the military on his side is critical to his maintaining power. And the day that the military decides that he no longer is the person who should be in power, he'll no longer be in power. The, the military ultimately controls what happens and the military controls whether that happens violently or not violently. And so it's, go, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, I, I was just going to say, so, so, you know, what happens next year and, and whether Maduro accepts free and fair elections or not free and fair elections, a lot of that's going to happen behind the scenes with military generals and the opposition, you know, I think I think the Venezuelan opposition understands that as well as anybody and should be having those discussions with the military as well as the civilian political leaders in Venezuela, because that that is ultimately what will matter. OK, we'll stay tuned. Let me uh, end with a, uh, a question which uh, many of the folks in our network have asked, which is that uh, uh, our U.S. Treasury Department knows that there are innocent uh, bondholders here in, in this broader geopolitical struggle. Uh, is there any sensitivity that the Treasury Department has that you've picked up on uh, to find a pathway forward where, you know, perhaps uh, they are not the collateral damage here? And again, uh, wide-ranging institutions, uh, endowments, pension funds, etc., are holding uh, the paper of Venezuela. I think that there is very little sympathy within the U.S. government for the bondholders in Venezuela. Um, I think that, that a number of, I think the general view is that they knew that they were gambling with the government uh, that eventually was going to default, and this was the day that the default happened. And so there, I think there's very little sympathy in the U.S. government for bondholders and, and really the, the sanctions, you know, the, the goal for the sanctions right now is to somehow find a way to pressure the government and pressure the military without putting any additional pain upon the Venezuelan population. And I think, I think if there's any sympathy to be had, it's for the Venezuelan people, not for the bondholders uh, at the moment. And the, the general view of the U.S. government, that, yeah, they, they, I, I don't think they really care. I think they view the anyone who was holding Venezuelan bonds as gambling on a government that everyone knew someday was going to default. It just happened to be this month. Okay. Last question. What, we sh what should we be looking for over the you know, the next month, two months, quarter, et cetera. So I think the immediate question is going to be how the negotiations between the government and the opposition turn out. Uh, there, it, there are likely to be elections next year. Venezuela is no longer really a democracy, so those elections are just going to be called at the whim of the president. Uh, they could be called as early as February or March. They could, they could wait until December or even push into 2019, potentially. Um, but those elections, uh, elections are always a critical pressure point for governments, even governments that are not democratic. Elections are a critical pressure point. So, so how those elections turn is ultimately going to be the deciding factor for Venezuela's political future. At some point, Venezuela is not going to be able to pay. Uh, it's going to run out of money. And so watching Venezuela's foreign reserves, uh, watching their oil production and whether they can increase oil production at all in the, in the coming year, uh, those, that, those sorts of economic numbers are, also, are the other thing I'd be watching. So, so looking at the negotiations, 
the upcoming election, whenever it may be, and then just monitoring the, the basic economic numbers to find out when that day comes where they're just going to be unable to pay for anything with any sort of foreign currency. Uh, those three things are what to watch over the next, say, 15 months. Okay, and uh, apropos your comments, James, also watch uh, the actions of Russia and China as uh, players in this uh, geopolitical yeah. drama. Absolutely. James, I, I don't think... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Please. No, please. Uh, I was just going to say, you know, I, I don't expect China to make any significant announcements in the, in the, in the coming year, but obviously I, I think Russia's support for the Venezuelan government is critical. And if there were any signs that Russia was loosening their support for Maduro, uh, that would be a sign of an impending crisis for the Venezuelan government, without a doubt. Okay. James, thank you very, very much. Uh, as always, thanks for staying on top of the issue. And uh, for the listeners, uh, James often writes um, for our network, and we put out some extraordinary pieces, and he's promised to stay close to this, and uh, we'll keep people informed. Thanks again. All right. Thank you very much. Have a good day.